my dear listeners to Voices of the Sacred Feminine broadcasting across the globe for nine years now, speaking for those with no voice, speaking truth to power, sharing the news of the cognitive minority as we begin to manifest a new normal for the quality of life for the 99%. I have no doubt that's you and me. Yes, uh, it's here we talk about sex, power, politics, and religion, all the things we're so often told are the domain of only men. After all, we have less than 20% of women in leadership in these spheres of influence, but we aren't going to settle for that. We and our like-minded brothers with a new vision for the world want a seat at the table so we can be the force for change. As the Dalai Lama said, it would be Western women who would save the world. Well, I think he might have really meant it was sacred feminine ideals that offer us the best hope for an egalitarian world. Yep, we're tired of the domination, the authoritarian father, those fellas who feel entitled to tell us how it's going to be. Can you hear our sacred roar yet? Well, that musical opening tonight was Warrior Goddess by Lisa Thiel. Just the right piece, don't you think, for the tone of tonight's show? And our topic, which is uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, the suffragette and champion of women's rights, uh, brought to you by our returning guest, Sally Roche-Wagner. Other topics with Sally include how Stanton and her peer and cohort Matilda Jocelyn Gage felt about uh, economic justice, children's rights, natural childbirth, rewriting the Bible, uh, and women-centered cultures. I'm also going to ask her how these early foremothers got along. Uh, And later I'll have a uh, What's the Buzz segment for you, sharing the bees buzzing around in my bonnet when it comes to what's happening out there regarding women's issues and ideals of the sacred feminine. Are we making progress or getting trampled? But first, our current resident astrologer is with us, Kathy Pagano, and i got to ask her, what the heck is going on? So let's get to it. Welcome, Kathy, back to the show, our first show of 2015. Yes, yay for 2015. Another year has gone by. Yes, it's been very intense, and um, it probably, we could you know, we could, it's, I know that there have been solar flares in the last month that always disrupts us, but definitely there, I think the holidays, but combined with this last um, Sunday's Cancer Moon. Cancer is the mother moon, but it's also a very emotional and touchy moon. And, um, and with Pluto there and Uranus there, this moon hooked up with that, that, that um, square that I've been talking about now for the whole year. Um, that that revolutionary and um, evolutionary energy, 
And so we're feeling it. We're feeling it in our gut, don't you think? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I I was out with friends last night. We went to see uh, that uh, new movie, you know, Women in Bla- the Woman in Black, you know, and uh, and afterwards we stopped and we had coffee and we were just talking about how none of us are sleeping well, how uh, it just seems to be uh, everyone's so agitated, the traffic is worse, people are arguing, and then you know you turn on the headlines and. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, you have, uh, you know, just the same old, same old just feels like it's amped up a few degrees. Yes. Well, because the, I think it's because the tensions are just getting there. It seems as if the old one, especially, well, all around the world, but, you know, the patriarchy is still in charge. The Republicans won the House and the Senate and, and so many states, and it's like are people delusional. But, you know, I think because um, of the energies right now, we really need to have a lot of people feeling that things aren't going well anymore. And um, we are kind of the leaders, people that are listening to your show. We've, been, we've known this for a long time, some of us back to the 70s. We've known, okay, we have to make these changes and we're not. But I think the market is being disrupted. I'm not really a, a financial astrologer, but I have a I'm in a group with a bunch of them on Facebook, and they're talking about real, you know, intense um, monetary decline in the next few years. Um, And um, so I think people are feeling life isn't getting better. And so um, with that full moon on Sunday, I think that can be some of the cause. Well, you know, it feels like it's getting better for the rich. You know, I mean, the stock market is up higher than it's ever been. I mean, I know it took a tumble when oil prices went down. It went down a few hundred points, but it it had broken 18,000. But yet, you know, most people I know are, you know, um, uh, hoping they have a job next week. Um, You know, some of them are on minimum wage. Some of them are on unemployment that's about to run out. Um, I don't, you know, it, it sort of feels like the recovery is not hasn't been for everybody, and, and it isn't um, real. Yeah, the yeah, recovery like, is never going to be real because the recovery is the patriarchy lying in bed trying to die but not wanting to, and so becoming, you know, a vampire or a zombie or something. So it's not really a recovery because the system doesn't work anymore. We know that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we talk about recovery. It's like we have to revive the system over and over and over again. Yeah, and I mean, it, and to tell you the truth, um, you know, it, part of me really wants the Republicans to go apeshit crazy next year to, um, you know, really sort of expose themselves. I mean, they're already talking about passing laws that using religious freedom as a right to discriminate. You know, I mean, if they really do all of this stuff, um, I mean, if if they uh, try to do away with the minimum wage, if they mess with Social Security, if they give the rich more tax breaks, you know, I I guess I wonder, you know, are Americans going to just keep sitting back and taking it? Or are we going (laughs) to... Are we going to have the revolution? <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think, and I think women are going to lead the way. We are going to have the revolution, uh, and I think I think we have to begin it with small little steps in terms of how we relate to people and what we do in the world. But 
it's not going to stop. We it, we can't revert back because if we do, we're going to become a mechanized dictatorship in the future. And we're the grandmothers of the future, so we have to get our acts together and get out there and harangue the people we need to and say it's time to change. But well, this do you have any tips on how to corral this chaotic energy and channel it for something positive and not sort of become a victim of it? Right. Well, that's really a big thing right now because astrologically, what I thought I would do quickly today is just give you a broad overview of what the whole year is going to be like. Okay, and yeah, because we have like 20 minutes. We have a little bit more time yeah. than usual. Okay, so we have, you know, first of all, uh, I, I've been talking about the Pluto-Uranus square. It's from the 60s it, when it began a new cycle. Now we're at the hero's journey where we have to really make it strong. And there's seven of them, and we've gone through six. The last one was in December, and the last one is in March, seven squares. If anybody out there knows numerology, you know that seven is completion, but it's an initiation process where we have to make a really good choice to go into the next place. And so um, the seven, you know, once it ends, it doesn't mean, okay, then everything's over. It will continue. The energy will continue to to go on for another at least five more years, so 2020. But um, but but I think that with this last one, it's in it's during Pisces. Um, there's a big solar eclipse at the very last degree of Pisces. I think part of our whole thing is: are we victims, or are we going to tap into our spiritual um, energies? Because I, I think the only time for me when I get chaotic is I got to just sit down and meditate. So a mm-hmm. lot of it is we need to channel the energy and ground it. And yeah. and people more and more need to do this. I gather that mindfulness is the new flavor of the month because some some guy on TV talked about it. Um, I was just <laughs> reading an article about it, and and um, Anderson Cooper, I guess, talked about it. And um, but mindfulness is just the you know quieting the mind. But then you have to understand what's going on. You have to take it to the next step. And I think women are doing are a little bit ahead of the men. This year is going to be interesting talking about men because there's um, both Venus and Mars go retrograde. And um, does Mars go retrograde? Maybe not. Um, but Venus goes retrograde, and it meets up with Mars three times. Um, just like the, the two other planets that you know I was saying was um, they come together in a square. Well, Venus and Mars are going to come together in what's called the conjunction. They're going to be at the same degree three times. So this is really uh, this year is a real change year for how the masculine and feminine energies come back and work together. Wow, sounds okay, like um, sounds like it could be real potential relationship conflict. Is, is, I mean, it, uh, on the, on, I guess on the negative side of that, right? Yes, definitely. But it could also be a, a real change, sea change in how men and women are relating to each other. Women and women especially are very good at balancing the left and the right brain, the masculine and feminine brains. Men not so much, but maybe the men are stepping up to the plate a little bit. I'm seeing it in some of the younger guys in their 20s, maybe in their 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, and and these younger this younger generation they need to learn how to put their spiritual pr- pr- um, principles into practice in a way um, by living a you know the life they need to live. When you're young, you need to ground yourself and get going on your life. 
And then you have the older generation who needs to start to open up to their wisdom and go out and help. So well, you know, that's I going on. You know, I can't go help ahead. but think that maybe – uh, could it be, um, you know, sort of a reaction to all of the stuff we've been hearing in the news about the domestic violence and the NFL, the, you know, the um, how we've raised awareness about the assaults to women on college campuses and the military, um, you know, young girls be, being married off at, at, at nine years old to 90-year-old uh, Muslim men. I mean, all of these horrible things. I, I don't know if it's just because I pay attention to those things, but it feels like it's more on the lips of the mainstream world. It is. Well, last year, I don't know if you did the um, the um, bill, um, One Billion Rising with Eve Ensler. Yeah. Um, that group about human trafficking for the last two years. Well, I live in Las Vegas, which is, you know, of all the places to live. And they really didn't do anything. Uh, my small group of women friends, we danced and we recorded it, but it wasn't downtown. I just got an email that downtown on Fremont Street, they're going to have a big anti-trafficking um, thing this Saturday. Wow. Um, with some radio personality, some woman radio personality doing it. So, yes, I mean, because of all the places in America, human trafficking is big here in Las Vegas. And you would think that there would be more people that would come out against it in the years in the past, but no. But this year, yes. So we have, I think there's going to be a new alignment. I think in the end it will be an alignment between our Venus and Mars nature. Because, of course, Venus is our values, what we hold dear. And then uh, Mars is how we act on our desires, our desires and our willingness to act on them. And so, you know, those two things, if we could bring our desires in alignment with our values, which means, oh, my gosh, we have to grow up and become adults, um, then, do you know what I mean? Then there's hope. And right. so, you know, all the, all the only thing that the stars can tell us is that the heavens, and, and we're all connected, of course. We are. We're connected to the earth and to the cosmos. But the heavens are saying, you know what, people, it's time. It's time to grow up. And if you're willing to, we'll give you the energy. And if you're willing to evolve, we'll help you with your revolution. You know, part of it is that we have to step out of of um, the patriarchy and and sort of like take unplug from it, right? So, and I'm seeing communities forming and people helping. There's a group of people here, just a family, um, a, a, you know, mother and a father and some kids, and they were they were they had extra food from their food stamp or whatever wherever they get their food, and they got on their bikes and handed it out to people. Um, you know, homeless people, and now they the men dub themselves Knights of the Lady Moon, and they go oh. Knights of the New Knights of the New Moon, and they get on their bicycle every night and they deliver food to the homeless. Wow, wow, that's so, so nice. So it's those little tiny that we can do to change the world that I think is the point, because it is about there's a lot of energy in the sky right now that says stop being a martyr, start aligning yourself with spiritual purpose. Saturn just went, one of the things that happens this year is Saturn moved from Scorpio to Sagittarius. Saturn is always the reality factor, the tester. He's, when Saturn's in a sign, it, it says, pay attention, you need to deal with this. So we've been dealing with our emotional wounds that we've had in, from relationships, 
for the past two and a half years while Saturn was in Scorpio, and now it's going into Sagittarius, which is a bit more freewheeling, but it's about universal law. So we might see better laws, you know, not the ones that that the idiot Republicans are trying to put into place, but actual better laws that make us, that make things work. That's okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and part of it is we need to hope for the best. We have Jupiter, which is the ruler of both Sagittarius, where Saturn is, and also um, um, Pisces, where Neptune is. Neptune's a big player here too for the next fourteen years. In um, and and basically in Leo, it says have hope, be creative, don't go down a dark path. Um, you know, um, be generous and cooperative and be your Leo, you know, shining self. Create something. And then in the summer, it's going to go into Virgo, which is the god and the goddess getting married in a way. So there's all these repeating themes this year, really, about us leaving behind victimhood and healing um, through spirituality, through opening up to our spiritual beliefs, whatever they are. Right. And living right. a true and good life. Well, that's hopeful. You know, that that uh that really is hopeful. Yeah. Well, I mean we could talk about all the negatives, but that's what people expect. But I think we need new stories and that's the other side of Sagittarius. Sagittarius is the lawgiver but also the storyteller. And so is Jupiter, which rules Sagittarius. So we really need a new story. We need a new story about possibilities. Gene Houston talks about the possible human. Um, we really need to have that hope, you know, because we can go into the future with hope or despair. I think going in with hope is much more fun and creative. Yeah, and, you know, in thinking about those those folks, you know, who are going out, you know, giving homeless food, I mean, you, you, uh, I, you know, I, I can just imagine how different they feel about things, you know, because I know when we actually get out there and do, rather than just get mired down in the negative, you know, the worry, the despair, you know, even if we just get out there and do little things, you know, it's putting a different energetic into the world, and it's also helping us feel better, which helps us, you know, it compounds us being able to put a better energy out there. So if more and more people are doing that, you know, that you know that may help shift things too. Yes, definitely. I mean, and these people, they're not wealthy people. This is the, a couple who, of course, from my point of view, are young. They're maybe in their 30s or 40s. They have, you know, younger children, and they're, eight, you know, 8 to 12-year-old, 8 to 15-year-old, and they're on food stamps, I think, or they're on um, wherever you go to the food pantry. And it was because they had made extra food for themselves. They thought, what are we doing? Let's give it away. And so they right. started making it. And it was and it was the husband as well as the wife, and he's the one, the man in the family is the one going out and doing this with the with the kids and with other young men, especially because it's downtown Las Vegas, so it's not particularly safe. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's something happening, and I think it has to do with community because I think the biggest thing that we all need this year is community. Um, Neptune and Chiron are in Pisces. Pisces is the sign that says we're all one. Now, 
we can all be one and sort of, or we can know that if I feed someone else, I'm going to get fed in some way. And that's the spiritual vision, right? And right. so as we end the Piscean age, we need to understand that we are all one. And so when we work in a group or a community, we're creating the basis of the Aquarian age, which will come in the next hundred years or so. And we want those communities to be loving communities and generous communities and um, creative communities and not some totalitarian everybody um, lockstep and walk in the same way. So we are the ones who shape it. That's the exciting part. If we take the time to shape something, it will take root. Yeah, you know, I I guess it's hard for people to, you know, um, grasp that, you know, because it feels so intangible. You you know what I mean? Right. It's it's not like it's something you can touch or see necessarily, you know. So, um, you know, maybe that's why it's hard for people to get motivated and, um, and, and to actually do this because you don't really, you know, it, maybe in some ways you don't really see the immediate results, you know? Right. Well, the thing is, I think more than anything, is, the, is you, we need to con- start connecting with our communities. We all live in our little boxes. I raised four children in a house all by myself without a community to help me. That's crazy. I live here, and I call them my hippie children because they're all about 20 years younger than me or more. I think the or more is even more. Um, <laughs> but but they're, And I call them my hippie children because they totally believe in, in these values that we're talking about. And we just had a fundraiser for a man who has MS. Um, everybody contributed time and, and their talents to it. Um, and we're all going to get together and talk about how can we keep this up and have an outreach into the world, like with the Knights of the New Moon, and how can we add to that. And so you can't do it if we live in the same paradigm of, well, we're older and, you know, why would I go out and hang out with a bunch of kids? We have to start to get our like-minded women and men together and actually eat dinner together and, and do rituals together and what can we do in the community together and let's have a community garden together and and so it's about coming out of our separateness concretely and and forming these communities that maybe yeah. that that maybe we don't think you know we really don't want to we have a community we go to our little places once in a while but we really need a community and i think that's yeah. how we started yeah, something to rely on. I know here in L.A., you know, different little groups, I'm here and this and that and this and that. And, you know, it seems like a lot of different people are starting to talk about, you know, uh, well, and, you know, because some of us, you know, we're aging, you know, we're going to retire soon. And, you know, some of us don't even have kids. You know, we're a little worried about that. You know, people are starting to talk about, well, maybe buying a piece of land and putting um, you know, like those nice mobile homes on it or, you know, getting a big house with a big central kitchen and, and living room and a bunch of bedrooms and so that, um, you know, people can try to support one another instead of, like you said, yes. all be in our separate little boxes. Yeah, that is, you know, that's one of the calls, at least from the heavens, and just I'm seeing it rise up with the young people. And so... Um, so we're so it's about how do we 
you know, like we started, a group of women started meeting every Thursday night just for dinner. And then we started doing rituals. And then sometimes we'd paint our nails or watch a movie. But often, and then out of that developed goddess masks. We all picked a goddess card and made goddess masks. And then we created a ritual. And then, do you know what I mean? And so now these women are so connected. They're so connected. And they're women with little babies and middle-aged women and old 65-year-olds like me, and, you know, and so even if we're not, even if we don't go and hang out and do whatever um, together during the week, we're a group, and we're going to make decisions and go into the thing. So part of it is how do you find your group and start creating that group energy? And I think that's the way, I think you were saying, how do we really do it? I think that's the way we really do it. You can't do it alone. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah, you absolutely. need to find a group of people who share visions of the possible, and then are willing to say, out of their busy schedule or not busy schedule, yes, I'll commit to to hanging out with you guys, you know, once a week. I'll commit to, oh, now that we're doing it, yeah, wait, let's. What kind of vision do we have? So it's about you need to be with people to create whatever the next step is. I really feel I that. See. I see. I see. Yeah, it makes it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's it's um you know it's a it's a bonding uh, exercise, really, you know. And, and we're and, learning, yeah. And we learn to put up with people because, of course, there's always people that are going to annoy us. And but it's our shadow, okay. The more annoyed you are, the more you know it's your shadow, okay. But it doesn't mean that you agree with everybody, and it doesn't mean that they're your best friends. But you do have a companionship with them and you do share certain values and if you bring in enough people then then it it, it becomes an entity in its own and what we're learning is how do we work together in groups as equals the Aquarian ideal and that's the next phase right so we have to experiment in with the Aquarian ideal of how how can we be powerful and yet you be powerful in the same way how can a bunch of powerful people actually create together. Yeah, shared leadership. Shared leadership. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we probably have about four minutes left, um, Kathy. Um, how do you want to, what do you want to share with us in that, that time? Okay, so right now, in this in-between time, no matter what the temperature is at, we're still in the quiet time. And I always, I just really feel that um the seed of light or the child of light that was born at winter solstice really doesn't become um, concrete in in any way until February 2nd, in bulk, okay? That's when we begin to see the vision. And so part of it is this in this time, it's not about, oh, I have to make years, resolutions, and this and that. It's about being playful as if you're a little kid, Um you know, listening within, seeing where your desires are going. Don't try to discipline yourself yet into, oh, I should hurry up and make these, um, you know, start these things. But it's more about what are the things that seem to be popping out of you? You know, what is your inner self urging you to do? Follow it. And then maybe follow another path here. And, And suddenly there's a whole bunch of different things. It's like a little child with a lot of toys. And I think it's good to play. Like okay. there's a new type of exercise, and I don't remember the um, website, where what you do is you crawl, and you do the things a little child does, and it gets your body in shape. 
just like a little child has to build up muscles to crawl and hold their head up. And so it's about not rushing in with ideas of already what this year is going to be, but allowing them to unfold. Yeah, because I think, you know, we're all starting to hear about resolutions already and, um, you know, we're we're starting to structure our year, but uh, but you're saying, you know, don't be so quick to find, to structure. Um, let it, uh, um, you know, give it time to percolate and, you know, maybe some things we hadn't even thought of. Give that, give that time to develop. Right, because in the Greek mythology, it says first there was chaos and then arose broad-bosomed earth. So out of chaos comes form. But what we do every year at New Year's is we go, oh, okay, here's a new year and I'm going to do this, 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 and this. We try to shape it and it doesn't work, okay? (laughs) How many people really ever keep their resolutions? But if you let it come gently, if you are playful, because aside from the heavens and what astrology tells us, we look at the earth rituals too. And on February 2nd, Candle Month for the Christians, both for the Celts, Groundhog's Day, the whole idea is, oh, we can see the light now. At the winter solstice, it's still the darkness that the light gets born within. But for the first time, we can actually see how it might manifest in the world. So you take this six weeks between... Um, winter solstice, and February 2nd, to let to let it play, to let it just do what it wants to do and then see what vision comes on February 2nd about what you need to do. Yeah, in a way, it's sort of a new way to look at um, letting the light come in. You know, it's not just the light outside the sun. It's your, sort of your own revelation. Yes. It's the inner light. So and that's why, you know, not only the planets, but also the earth seasons shape us. And when we work with the earth seasons, we get, we hook onto that energy and and it helps us. But when we fight against either the heavenly energies or the earth energies, we just grew up. <laughs> it's right, disaster. right. As my and waste, waste time and get says, frustrated too. <laughs> right. And disaster means against the stars. It's, in, it's a Latin word that means this, against, after the stars, disaster. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. I hadn't heard that before. Well, Kathy, oh, thank yeah. you again for the for the monthly instruction on what's ahead and how to maybe, um, you know, master it, so to speak, so that, um, you know, positive things come out of, uh, you know, the, the celestial energies, um, you know, I really appreciate it. And why don't you tell listeners uh, how to reach you for readings or your book or your classes and all the good stuff you're doing? Okay. Well, I'm on Facebook, Kathy with a C, Pagano, Pagan with an O. And um, I don't know, I just went blank. And my website is www.wisdom-of-astrology.com. Next month when we talk, I think I'm going to start offering um, readings, not not now because I'm still crawling around, but <laughs> one of my ideas as I was crawling around like a child was it's time maybe for people, for women especially to look at their feminine um, astrological archetypes. And so even though there's thousands now of... Um, thousands of asteroids, there's a few that are major. And so, you know, I, I'm really working and honing more working with women. 
how do we find our unique feminine power? How do we come out of the patriarchy um, and manifest our wisdom and our intention and purpose? So that's sort of the, the focus of my um, work, I think, in the coming year. And um, so just if you want to find me, go to um, wisdom-of-astrology.com and you'll find all the things I do. Okay. And if uh, okay. listeners have any trouble finding uh, Kathy, just uh, let me know and I will connect you up. Well, Kathy, okay. thank you again uh, for being with us. And, um, you know, I guess the next time we talk, it'll be around in bulk. Yes, it will be after that. I think we're going to wait until the 11th or 12th of February and we're going to do a storytelling night. We're going to talk about feminine fairy tales to the two of us. Yeah, I think that'll be a lot of fun. Well, thank you so okay. much, and, and have a great month. And, um, you know, tell the folks in your dream class hello for all of us. Okay, take care. Okay, okay. good night. Well, you know that sound. Uh, we're crossing the threshold into the next part of the show. And uh, I see my next guest, Sally's on the switchboard, and I'm going to get to her in just a moment. But I have to... Um, try to help pay for the airtime here. So I owe uh, Joe Carson um, a commercial. So here we go. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree is. When I came out of it, this is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, I want to thank uh, Joe Carson and Dancing with Gaia for uh, her commercial that helps us defray the cost of airtime. And uh, as I have been um, saying about uh, uh, Dancing with Gaia, uh, it's a great DVD, and uh, there's a 45-page uh, mini book that goes uh, goes with the DVD. Uh, it's only $20, and it talks about sacred sexuality and earth energy, um, how to connect with nature, all of that sort of stuff that helps us get in, you know reconnected, interconnected uh, with each other uh, and with the earth. And um, many different uh, scholars and practitioners uh, are on the DVD. Uh, but besides the one you heard, um, you know, offering their wisdom and expertise. So um, I hope you will uh, take a look at it. And. Um, uh, as I said, uh, you know, airtime here is not free, and uh, listener support uh, is greatly appreciated, and there's so many of you. Uh, if only a small number of you sent in just a little, it adds up to a lot. Uh, so think about that. Uh, it would be great to have the rest of the year's airtime paid for in advance so we don't have to worry about it every month. Uh, and if you'd like to help with that, uh, please go to my website, karentate.com. Once you're there, go to the guide 
Goddess store page, and all the way down at the bottom there are some PayPal buttons uh, where you can either click on certain amounts or the one at the very bottom of the page will let you uh, put in any amount you like. So um, thank you very much for considering um, you know, helping keep uh, the show on the air if it's something you value. So uh, please stay tuned um, in with me after my chat with Sally Roche-Wagner, which we will begin in a second or two here. I just want to remind you, uh, after I ta- uh, our talk, I'll be sharing my first What's the Buzz segment uh, for the new year, discussing a few things that have passed my desk uh, in the last week or so. Uh, there was an interesting article, uh, 10 Questions for Conservatives. Uh, you'll wish you had these uh, for the holiday dinner table. Uh, but you'll want to have them for the coming months with the Republicans in control of the House and the Senate. Uh, They'd make great fuel for writing letters or sending emails or starting conversations. Also, uh, there's a great article I want to share with you uh, by Gloria Steinem called If Men Could Menstruate. Really funny stuff. Um, Another uh, incident happened in India. Uh, An Indian company uh, started harassing female workers when they found a tampon in the ladies' restroom trash can. Uh, So uh, that's the story I think you'll want to know about. And I'm also going to be giving a shout-out to Constance Tippett, um, artist of the Goddess Timeline, and also uh, to John Fletcher, uh, a husband of the late Irene uh, Nicholas, a wonderful artist. So um, that will all come after uh, my chat with Sally. So uh, let me introduce you once again to Sally Roche-Wagner, if you don't remember her uh, from uh, our last interview. Uh, She's just been named by uh, Women's E-News as one of the 21 leaders for the 21st century, Uh, 20 women and one man who recast the stories of women and girls through words and deeds. Sally's also the founding director of the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation. Uh, She's adjunct faculty at uh, Syracuse University. Uh, She's a nationally recognized lecturer, author, performance interpreter of women's rights history, taking her one-woman show on the road this year, and we'll have her tell us more about that in a minute. And in Sally's own words, uh, uh, in her biography, she said, uh, and I quote, well, I sort of paraphrase, Uh, she fell in love with a dead woman and her whole life changed. Uh, And she was speaking about radical first wave feminist Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Uh, Sally hopes to instill in the next generation Gage's message, which is a sense that the world has to be changed and they can be the ones to change the world. Well, Sally, welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Thank you, Karen. Delighted to visit with you again. Well, we had such a fun talk last time. I'm glad uh, I'm glad we decided to do this again. And and there's so much to talk about. <laughs> oh, I am too. <laughs> so why don't we start with um, uh, your your one one you know your well your award first of all. How is that going to manifest? And you know maybe tell us a little bit about it. I mean, because incredible kudos to you. You know, um, well, thank you, you you are so deserving for all your hard work. Um, give yourself a moment to brag a little bit. <laughs> oh. Well, it really is an honor, and beyond that, 
I think that I, I really am grateful for the opportunity it presents to give people a different sense of the women's rights movement. You know, the one that we know is really a movement of 72 years from 1848 to 1920 of working for the vote. And in that story, you know, which is in itself important, but we lose the the knowledge of the the progressive wing of the movement, that they were raising all the issues that are still unresolved today, and in many ways with much of the same language that we're using today. So when one gets a bully pulpit like that, one is very grateful for the opportunity to uh, continue um, telling an untold story. So, so was there any one thing in particular that they singled you out for to bestow this award on you, or was it, you know, your vast body of work? Uh, you know, I I wish I could answer that. I think that would be a question for them. But I, the sense I have is the, um, you know, precisely what I'm talking about that. When we bring Matilda Jocelyn Gage into the mix, it gives us a different picture of our history and one of the unfinished business. And it also gives us a whole different look at Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Okay. So so what you're saying is, you know, uh, people think of the iron-jawed angels, you know, that movie, that it was all just about the right to vote, but it was really about so many other things that affect uh, women's lives. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, like the idea of, uh, I guess, children's rights and economic justice and, um, you know, just sort of a more woman-centered culture. Is that what you're, is that where you're going? Yes. Um, if we look at uh, the period to 1890, we're looking at a lot of focus on the vote, especially in 1870. And the 1870s were a period of time when it was the 100th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. And you know, remember, this was a time when women did not have the vote. Uh, and so here is a 100th anniversary of... of um, no taxation without representation. And so women said, well, we're taxed, we're not represented, we're going to do a tax protest. And 1876 was the centennial of the country. And women said, you know, apparently the declaration didn't include us. So they issued a new declaration of rights of women. And what they did was to take the opportunity of the 100th anniversary and to turn it into a look at, look at, here you're talking about the rights of of the country and half your population don't have them. We don't live under a republic. We live under an oligarchy of sex. Well, and and there was also slavery, too, on top of that, right? It's what? And and there was also slavery on top of that. Well, slavery had been abolished by the 70s, but African-American men had been given the vote by the 15th Amendment. And so all men had the vote and no women did. And I think that was another thing that they were looking at. And it also, you know, uh, Susan B. Anthony was arrested for voting in a test case and found guilty. And the Supreme Court in 1874 ruled that women did not have guaranteed in the United States of America. 
And so, so, so that when they the wrote point. the Constitution and they said men, they that wasn't just a metaphor for humankind. They really meant men. They certainly did. And eighteen a hundred years later, they said, "Yep, that's exactly what we meant." And so I think by eighteen eighty, Susan B. Anthony was still focusing on the vote. But Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Matilda Jocelyn Gage increasingly came to look at, wait a minute, there are all these other issues. The vote is simply a tool by which to lift, they said, the fourfold oppression of women at the hands of the church, the family, the capitalist, and the state. And Gage called for an end to all of these existing institutions, which she said would happen in the form that they exist, their function is to maintain the oppression of women. And so, you know, we we get rid of these institutions or we gain rights for women, and not just rights, but we change the entire system. They began to look at indigenous cultures, and they said, you know what? Women are under a much better system here than we are in the United States government. They began to look at prehistoric matriarchies, and they said, you know, when Gage said when the feminine was removed from the Godhead, when when the concept of God became completely male, that was when Western civilization went downhill. Right. And so they're talking about reproductive rights. They're talking about how every child born has the right to be a chosen child. And Stanton said that a woman should be the absolute sovereign of her body, and she should be the one to choose whether to birth or not, dependent upon her judgment, her conscience, and her desire, which is still pretty radical today. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. I mean, um, it, well, and it, it, isn't it almost uh, the hundredth birthday? I think you said of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Welcome to the centennial of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. <laughs> She's two hundred years old this year. She was born two hundred years ago. Two hundred years ago. Two hundred okay, okay. years. Yep. Eighteen. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, and now all of these different things that you're talking about, um, Sally, are these the things that you touch on in your one-woman show? Do you, um, is it, you know, can you kind of give us a flavor for what that's like? Uh, you know, I'll tell you the way that I do it. I know this woman so well, having studied her for about 40 years and studied the women's rights movement, that I do this performance in an improvisational way. I gear it to the individual audience. I do a lot of study about what are the issues that the people that will be in the audience care about. And then I craft the performance around that. The most fun part for me is when I do a question and answer in character. And I'll, I'll give you an example of, of how it's so fun. Um, once in, it was Alliance, Nebraska, and it was a very conservative, I found out later, uh, clergyman who said, you know, I've been listening to you, Mrs. Stanton, and and you are denouncing the Bible. You're saying it was not written by God. It was written by man that it, you know, keeps women in a subordinate position. And he went on, and I said, no, is 
Mrs. Stanton, and he's addressing me in character, you know, as Stanton. He said, is it possible that you're a witch? <laughs> and, Stanton, <laughs> and Stanton thought about it for a moment. And you know, it's almost like a ventriloquist where these words come to you and you don't know where they come from. And Stanton, with great assurance, said, well, sir, as you know, which means wise woman. You flatter me with your question. <laughs> so it's just, it's great fun. The The reality of Stan is that she had all the best lines. She was the and, mistress and, of the one-liner. <laughs> and I guess you you dress in period clothes and yes, you do, do the hair mm-hmm. and all of that? And I frighteningly um, <laughs> uh, sort of look like her. Oh, you know, I so, so wish you were uh, you 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 would you would make it to the West Coast. I would so love to see you here in L.A. And I can just imagine, you know, the uh, the audience you would have out here. I mean, it would just be so incredible. I'd love to. I'd love to do it. Well, just you know, requires maybe, somebody to bring me. Well, you know, um, I should probably talk to some of the women that I know, and we'll talk to you and see what it would cost. And, you know, maybe we can uh, try to have somebody out here sponsor you or something like that. Oh, that would be wonderful. I'd love to do that. Well, we'll talk about it, um, you know, after the show, you know, maybe on uh, on email and and, and stuff. But um, so getting back to uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, now she was the one that wrote the uh, the woman's Bible, didn't she? She she did. She edited it. And and uh, what she did was she drew together a group of women. And at this time, there were a number of uh, revising committees that were beginning to look at the Bible and, and analyze what it really meant, you know, who wrote it, what was the time period. But they were all men. And she said, it's high time women do this. And so she got in touch with a wide range of women, conservative clergy women. There were a few by that time. It was 1895. And she got in touch with uh, feminists who had studied the Bible and asked them all if they would, basically she said, you know, get a pair of scissors and cut out all the passages related to women and let's analyze them. Let's look at them like these revising committees are doing. And, of course, (laughs) she says, the clergy danced like parched peas on a hot stove, and uh, they they one one minister said, "This book is the work of the devil himself." And Stanton calmly replied, "No, there was not a single man on our revising committee." <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! So, it, well, who, you said you said Mrs. Stanton. Well, well, you said Mrs. Stanton, Sally. Was she married? Yes, yes, she had seven children. I I didn't know that. I mean, how did mm-hmm. what, I mean, what was her relationship like with her husband? Was he uh, and you know, did he support her in all of this? You know, that is a very very interesting question that scholars have been puzzling over. It appears that in 1840 at the uh in what was it was the first International Conference of um, Anti-Slavery Activists. And there was a whole question about whether or not the women would be allowed. The women delegates that had been sent as official delegates 
from the U.S. And the clergy, you know, is saying this is a promiscuous assembly and St. Paul has said women must keep silent, uh, you know, in the churches and that means in public generally so these women cannot be seated. And it's not clear where Henry came down because the vote was never uh, identified by individuals. So, but he may not have been on the right side of that vote. And she was on her honeymoon. Uh, in 1848, when they called the Seneca Falls Convention, he was um, quite, uh, well, it was, I don't know how to say it. He was out of town. <laughs> whether that was convenient or whether that was purposeful, uh, it's not really clear. Um, right. He was a politician, I mean, can you imagine a politician in this day having a wife who is saying, the Bible is not written by God, it's the work of man. Um, well, it had to be problematic you know, and it should be revised. <laughs> yeah. I mean, was he a successful politician? Did he get elected to office in spite of her? Yes, he did. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. interesting, well, isn't it? she wasn't saying this at that time, but, you know, she was a feminist and... Uh, Imagine being a politician in 1845, and your wife is a is a powerful feminist figure. Yeah, and, you know, in, in fairness to Henry, that may have been a bit difficult. But toward the end of their lives, they lived separately. They seemed to have a, a friendly relationship. Uh, but I, it's a complicated question that yeah. it would be fun to put to Mrs. Stanton. Yes, yes, to see what she had to say. Well, uh, and, well, she had seven children, so they did get mm-hmm. together sometimes. <laughs> they certainly did, and she seemed to enjoy it. <laughs> so, so now she had some views on uh, natural childbirth, too. Yes, she did. Mm-hmm. She said, why is it that only Christian women suffer in childbirth? Uh, Indian women give birth easily and they're on their feet immediately. So she began to look at what are the causes. And she was part of a whole movement that was doing this at the time. She wasn't by herself. And they looked at, okay, what is it with Native women? What is it that they eat? What is their exercise like? And this really worked in with the um, natural foods movement, the uh, the self-help movement that was also emerging during this same time period, and the women's health movement. But she was an advocate of natural childbirth. Well, and that also put her in the position to sort of denounce the story of Eve and all women exactly. being punished for Eve's sin, too, right? And And she does that directly. The woman's Bible takes that on, and so does Gage. What they said was that that story in the Bible is the basis of woman's oppression. The idea that she is to suffer in childbirth is what led to the murder of all the witches because they were midwives who who practiced, um, you know, they assisted women in childbirth and they Mm -hmm. took away the pain. And -hmm. if they did that, of course, they were doing the work of the devil in the eyes of the church. Mm -hmm. And the papal bulls that called for the witch burning specifically talked about women assisting women in childbirth and, and removing the possibility of birth. They talked about abortion and birth control. And these were the papal bulls that were issued in the 1400, 1500 period. 
And Gage and Stanton were both very, very aware of that background. And they said the the mandate that woman is to be under the authority of men is the reason that women are in an inferior position. Papal law, um, you know, the, the law of the church, canon law became common law. And yeah. that, that's the basis of the problem. Gage really articulates that well in her book, Woman, Church, and State. That's incidentally online, searchable. Well, you know, you reminded me of a, a wonderful movie out there. If listeners have not seen it yet, rent it or download it from Netflix or something, wherever you can get it, I'm sure you can get it, is was the movie Pope Joan. And in the opening um, uh, scenes, you see this woman suffering in childbirth, and there's a midwife there who's trying to help her. Her husband is this crazy preacher, and he wants the midwife to let her suffer. And he goes on about, you know, this is her role because of the sins of Eve. But the midwife is smarter than him. The midwife turns to him and says something to the effect of, you see these two children? If she dies, you're going to have to raise these two kids by yourself. And who's going to take care of this farm and this house? And then suddenly he decides, well, you know, maybe the midwife can give her something to stop her from bleeding to death, you know. Um, it, it, it just brought, it, brought this whole thing um, home in a very personal way when you could see it so, so vividly. You know, it wasn't just a story. It, it was, you know, it was and incredible. I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up Pope Joe. This is this is one of those serendipity things, Karen, where where we're on the same page, and it's a small world, and all of this comes together. Donna Wolfercross, who wrote Pope Joan, also did a film, and the premiere of that film was in Syracuse, New York, as a fundraiser for the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation. <laughs> Donna identifies. Very strongly with Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Well, I didn't know that, and you know, I've interviewed uh, I've interviewed Donna here on the radio uh-huh. show, and met Isn't her uh, in person when they screened uh, screened her movie here in L.A. Small oh, <laughs> world, wonderful. And Donna is one of the most entertaining people I have ever known. She is just funny from beginning to end, and well, bright. And, you know, I, oh, she's a wonderful so woman. I so admire her too, Sally, because she explained to me that she, you know, pretty much single-handedly kept that book, Pope Joan, alive for a decade, I think, just starting book clubs all around the country till finally she parlayed all of that interest into this feature film, which was wonderful, you know? And which, I mean, how which many... took her forever, too. Yes, oh, yes. Just amazing. Yeah. Such tenacity, such tenacity yes. and vision. Um she's she's incredible. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I, I am <clears throat> I am curious about something and <clears throat> I wanna say it delicately because I don't mean to be negative, but I think there might be something that could be learned from it one way or another. Did you know, did the early feminists did they get along with one another? I mean, because so often in you know in our little our little fishbowl of a world, you know, sometimes there's dissension and there's gossip and there's backbiting and there's competition. What was it like for them? Do do we know? You know, I I I always place this in the context of my work 
in the women's movement in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, I was part of um, forming the first, one of the first women's studies programs in the country at California State University, Sacramento, and went on to get one of the first doctorates awarded for work in the field. And, you know, in those early days, it was, we didn't know how to negotiate solidarity because the system sets women up in competition with each other. You know, we're competing for for limited resources. We're, we're competing against ourselves, against impossible beauty standards. And, you know, there was, there was so much passion involved in wanting to really transform the world, having no idea how to do it, wanting not to have a hierarchical system, but how do we deal with an egalitarian one? You know, it's just impossible odds. And and people were injured in the process. And, the, you know, the same thing happened to some extent in the 19th century movement. And, and I know that, um, you know, I'm speaking now as someone who is obviously biased in this, but um, I think Matilda Jocelyn Gage felt very abandoned by, uh, by Susan B. Anthony and also to some extent by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And it was when they had a difference in um, strategy. Anthony wanted to go for the vote, and she was willing to um, make a coalition with the religious right, the conservative uh, women of the Women's Christian Temperance Union who wanted to put God in the Constitution. They wanted to create a Christian nation. And they wanted to get women to vote so that they would vote for it. And Gage felt that that was the greatest danger of the hour, that if we failed, if we had a, um, you know, a religious foundation for our nation, there wouldn't be any, it wouldn't matter who voted, you know, right. uh, the the um, merger of church and state would would be just intolerable for a democracy, and so she fought Anthony for the direction of the movement, and she lost. And ultimately, the movement became more conservative, focused exclusively on the vote, and Gage got written out of history. And Stanton initially um, went with with Anthony and agreed to become the president of the merged organization. And uh, she said, you know, I, I need to, to keep these conservative women in line, so I'm going to line up and be their president. Well, she was really unsuccessful in that. And when she issued the Woman's Bible, edited it in 1895, the organized women's movement of which she was the first president, the National American, essentially denounced the Women's Bible. Mm. They dissociated themselves completely from it. So, so I would and, imagine and, that a lot of these things that we're talking about that are, um, you know, the idea of, you know, they didn't believe in Eve's punishment, the, um, you know, the idea that women should have a right to their own reproductive rights. Um, I, I would imagine that that um, faction, that conservative women's faction, they probably were not in agreement with any of that, right? Oh, no, they were horrified by it. And that's why, uh, you know, eventually they just didn't want Gage to be remembered at all 
I mean, Cage was adopted into the wolf clan of the Mohawk Nation. She supported native sovereignty and um, treaty rights. And, you know, at a time when they were trying to court the South with racism, that if you give women the right to vote, white women outnumber Negroes and outnumber immigrants. That was the language. Uh, This conservative women's movement certainly didn't want a woman who had the vision of Gage or of Stanton, and to some extent they wrote Stanton out as well. Hmm. So, Interesting. You know, it's 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 I, I guess that women should have the right to be as politically unprincipled as men are. Yeah. And yeah. maybe we shouldn't expect more. You know, once we gain power within this system, that's how you win. And that's why I think Stanton and, and Gage both felt we need a different system. This one isn't working. Stanton says the few have no right to the luxuries of life, while the many are denied the necessity. And she called for cooperative living rather than competitive. Well, yeah. So, I mean, so, uh, I mean, and, and we're still fighting that battle today, you know, with the mm-hmm. income uh, income disparity and the haves and the have-nots and our so-called democracy, which is really, uh, you know, an oligarchy. Um, yeah. You know, I, I can see where she was really probably a, a burr in a lot of people's saddles, um, mm-hmm. you know, for, for, for raising these uh uh, you know, raising these issues. But, you know, I, I wonder in a way, um, you know, it, it, I mean, because you've studied this so much, if we go back in time, you know, maybe the women who, and maybe not, so you tell me, the women who were complicit in their own oppression, you know, these sort of right-wing Christian women who, um, you know, were against, you know, their, their you know, things that would have made their own life, lives better, were they they complicit in a way because they were being taken care of by their husbands, or was it all about if they don't do this, they're going to burn in hell? You know, I think it was a combination of the two, and I think that's really important, Karen, that to understand that that um, you know these were women who were really frightened about what is this change going to mean. You know, I have not had an education because I was denied it. Um, you know, I, I, women weren't allowed to go to college until, you know, in the the um, 70s and 80s is when you start getting a lot of women beginning to go to college. So here are women who had no education. Job inequity is huge. You know, women are making half the wages that men make and if they can even get a job. Um you know, up until the 1950s, women had to quit teaching school once they were pregnant. I mean, this is some of this is really fairly recent. And so I think that, you know, conservatism can really be understood in the sense that people fear change and change that they fear may make their lives worse. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think that's that's a fear that that, you know, ultimately the the change will the trust that the change will ultimately make the world better is it's it's an act of faith in some ways yeah i think yeah. that was what was really strong for the 19th century feminists was that they had the model of indigenous women and yeah. they saw 
you know, this is, it can be better. It can be perfected. Here's an example of it. And and even into the 1850s, 1860s, and 70s, before the whole Christianized and civilized policy of the United States government to absolutely try to destroy indigenous culture and turn the Indian into a man, as the boarding school uh, experience directed, um, up until that time, they're seeing traditional women who have the traditional authority of indigenous women. And that continued on and it continues on today. I mean, I continue to be inspired by my indigenous women friends. It's like entering into a different world where the rules are different. And even despite the attempt to totally colonize Native people, the indigenous tradition that continues on, I think, is the hope for survival of the planet and life on the planet. Well, yeah, sometimes I feel like, you know, they're the ones really carrying the torch for that. Exactly. Um, but, but sometimes they got the they, answer. Yeah, they, yeah they've always they've had got the, the practice. They continue to do it, and they've been doing it for a whole long time, a lot longer than patriarchy has been around. True, uh, and and I think the the only and it may vary from tribe to tribe, but I, I think the where I, I think it's hard for people to look to them as role models is you know mm-hmm. you know you have this ugly stereotype of the uh, you know the drunk Native American the domestic abuser. Um, and you don't see that strong Iroquois woman, you know, mm-hmm. um, that that you know so well, you know, that uh, those early feminists knew so well. Mm-hmm. And and my sense is, uh, and this is just a hypothesis, but my sense is that that was not just the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois. That obviously it was the Navajo, the Cherokee, but there are Lakota women, Sioux, you know, the the... <laughs> the oppressor name became Sue, it means poison adder, but their name for themselves, the Lakota. Those women are pointing back to their early matriarchal, matrilocal roots. And I think that, um, you know, there's there's a whole different story to be told than yeah. the one that, that we've been given. Um, and it'll yeah. be indigenous women, it'll be native women, it is those women that are now really reclaiming their roots and talking. The Lakota women talk about sovereign women in a sovereign nation. And I just, that is to me the model for how we need to go forward. Well, you know, there's so much of, uh, you know, history, you know, history is written by the conquerors. You know, we know that. And and, and it just, it's so frustrating, I think, for so many of us. I mean, how many people don't even know the story of Thanksgiving as a farce? You know, uh, you know, don't point. know what happened to the poor children in these Indian schools, or they think it was for for their own good. You know, beat the heathen out of them. You know, turn them into a Christian. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it, the the way our history books are written. Um, I, I don't know. It, it's just demoralizing in a way. You know, that mm-hmm. you don't really know the real truth. It's you know, and it's still going on today. Uh, there was a story in the Huffington Post a few months ago. Uh, somebody had had really looked at what is uh, what are kids learning today in public schools in the U.S. about Native people, and it's the same old past tense. Um, you know, nothing, nothing uh, 
that really is instructive. Yeah. Uh, and that's the that's the the typical educational system. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a year or two ago they were talking about the books that come out of Texas and the people in charge of the content of the book were conservative Christians. I mean, they wanted to write out all the accomplishments of of black people. They wanted to Mm -hmm. leave out Thomas Jefferson, anything Mm -hmm. that just didn't suit their agenda. I I, I don't know. I I guess it's so hard for me to fathom that, you know, that you would distort Mm -hmm. history so badly um, I, I don't know. It feels like, you know, it, it, like a grave sin to me. <laughs> uh, but, um, I, I like that. I, I like the the redefinition of sin. I think that's good. <laughs> uh, if you Gage Gage said the true religion is that which sets people free. So I think that in in using that definition, you're right. <laughs> that's yeah. a sin. Yeah. Well, it keeps the truth away from people. The truth that will set people free. Well, yeah. I mean, patriarchy doesn't want people free. Patriarchy wants mm-hmm. people cogs in the wheel, slave, mm-hmm. you know, slave wagers. Um, you know, just well, well, we well, we all know that. But um, mm-hmm. but these these early women, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Matilda Jocelyn Gage, they were also talking about. Um, that they in, in that some of the material you sent me, she felt that teaching children about a God who punished sinners was child abuse. I love that. Yes, isn't that amazing? Yeah, she actually went through almost, and I talk about this in performance. Um, what you would call today characterizes a, a a nervous breakdown when she was at Emma Willis School. There were um, evangelists that were coming around, and she said that the the vision of hell was so real that she just lived in terror. And she would she would come into her father's bedroom at night and kneel by his bed and say, "Pray for me, Father, for if I die before you know the morning, I am a sinner." And this whole terror of you know I'm going to hell and slight slight um, misbehavior seen as you know you're going to burn for eternity. Um, she her father finally pulled her out of school. Six weeks they went on a, a, a vacation basically, and nothing about religion was allowed to be talked about. And they programmed her. And she so it sounds she like she was out close to a nervous breakdown, you know, over yeah, the, exactly, out of fear. Exactly. Uh huh. A religiously induced nervous breakdown, and she came out of that saying, "No one should ever." burden a child with that and and the god that children should be given is a god of love and yeah. not a god of punishment and terror well, i mean doesn't it um doesn't it surprise you sally how many pieces well or maybe i'm just not reading the right books or i maybe I, i'm not pointed in the right direction but there's so few people that have the courage to say stuff like that you know, I mean, I wrote an article once about this God of the Bible being a schizophrenic. You wouldn't want him for your neighbor. You wouldn't want him for your uncle. You wouldn't want him, you know, who, who would want this man who, yeah. you know, wants you to, you know, kill sons and destroy uh, tribes of people. And, I mean, you know, this is a scary dude. You know, he's like a serial yeah. killer. He's a mafia hitman or something. You know, who would really want this God? And I guess mm-hmm. it just amazes me that more people don't say stuff like that. 
Oh, excuse me. You know what? I have to tell you, this is this is a little uh, digression, but it comes directly out of what you said. What is so fun about doing performance as Elizabeth Cady Stanton is that she says things that people can't get by with saying today. And it creates a sort of a cognitive dissonance in people because here is this dead woman, you know, or here's this woman being portrayed by a scholar wearing a wig. And the, you know, I can't get, oh, excuse me. I, I hope I'm not coming down with the cold. It's like 20 below in Syracuse, New York with the wind chill. It's really Oh, my cold. goddess. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and stay warm where you are, you lucky person, you. But, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's fun because people look at this and go, why, this is outrageous. And then they yeah. realize, she said this over 100 years ago. It was, it was really fun. I did a performance at the Smithsonian. I was living in South Dakota at the time and um, did a performance at the Smithsonian and a woman walked in and apparently listened to the performance and then went home and wrote a letter to her congressman demanding, and it was a congressman, demanding that all funding for the Smithsonian be cut because they were bringing in Bible bashers from South Dakota. (laughs) (laughs) Who were saying these things, and she had carefully written down every single quote from Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Well, I got a note from the woman who had brought me at the Smithsonian, and I answered it back, citing, you know, giving the citation for every single one of those quotes from Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So you didn't actually make up any of it. No, nothing. It was her exact words, and uh, but. But it's that, you know, it's that that look, having to look at those words because they're coming at you from the past. Yeah. And it's like somebody could say that then and we can't even say something like that now. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, God, look at the people. Uh, I mean, look what happened in Paris. Was it yesterday? You know, mm-hmm. um, it, it's insane. You know, yeah. people are so thin-skinned. Um, so these chat books that you mentioned, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton on transforming society, on economic justice, on reproductive rights, her 80th birthday speech, on women-centered mm-hmm. cultures, these wonderful quotes that you're saying, are they in these chat books? They're absolutely from the chapbooks. They're the words of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And the reason I'm doing these chapbooks is because I want people to have access to her words in really simple, quick, um, accessible form. I write a little bit about what's the background of this. You know, when did she write this? What was going on? What's happening in the background at the time? And then just write into her words so people can can instead of hearing me paraphrase or hearing somebody say, well, Elizabeth Cady Stanton said something like, here are her words, read them. They are absolutely relevant today. So how do you get these chapbooks? Through Syracuse Cultural Workers. And it's uh, just a matter of going online, checking Syracuse Cultural Workers. I think it's Hold on one second, and I'll bring it up on my computer. I should know this, shouldn't I? I shouldn't have to, to, to jump for it. It's uh, SyracuseCulturalWorkers.com. I think let me just 
And so how much do the chapbooks cost? They're six ninety five each, and then you can also buy them as a set. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, while you're looking that up, you can probably uh, answer this off the top of your head. I'm really – well, obviously, you know, um, uh, Elizabeth and, and Matilda, they believed in women having the right to, um, you know, to, uh, you know, their reproductive rights. How did women back then actually control pregnancy? You know, what, you know, what were – I mean, what, what methods were they, they using? Well, this is what just absolutely blew my mind when I realized this. Forms of safe and effective childbirth were available by 1850. I found an 1836 birth control manual, basically it was, a a physiological sort of self-help manual, that described a cervical cap. I'm not even talking about a diaphragm. You know, a cervical cap is much more discreet, much more effective. Combined with a spermicide, it's almost, I think, 99% effective and no side effects to speak of. You know, nothing like the the ones that happen when you, you know, ingest some major hormones or use an IUD or something like that. This is a safe, effective form of birth control that was available in 1836. There's well, a description I... of you. You remember Elaine uh, and the Today Sponge? Is is yeah. Um, yeah, is he sponge-worthy? Well, guess what? That wasn't just on Friends. That was in before 1850. There was you a see, sponge... I had... So I, I, well, I had no idea, you know. I mean, well, obviously, you know, some of, uh, you know, I, I, I shouldn't, you know, watch Hollywood for any of, you know, anything of historical relevance, but I couldn't, it made me think about Boardwalk Empire, and they were showing how the women, you know, were shamed if they came to a doctor or to the hospital to get some form of contraception and, you know, how the how they had to do it behind their husband's back. And they yeah. were douching with chemicals that, like Lysol, you know. And you know and, why they were doing that? Because the Christian conservatives got the Comstock Acts passed. And what it did was to give Anthony Comstock a uh, 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 Christian conservative, the the power to decide what was obscene in the United States and prosecute anyone for obscenity. And Anthony Comstock went after birth control, went after abortionists, and and went after any depiction of sexuality. He got a man called Moses Harmon, who was the publisher of a newspaper, uh, Lucifer the Light Bearer, Lucifer meaning truth, you know, meaning, meaning light. Lucifer the Light Bearer, publisher from, uh, he was in Kansas, and he got him imprisoned, he imprisoned him three times because, because Moses Harmon opposed marital rape oh. in print. And he went wow. to prison for that three times. That's a history we should know about, isn't it? Yeah, we should. That, we should know about all reason, of that. We didn't have birth control for 100 years, even though 
It was medically available. It was the technology was there. We didn't have it for 100 years because the Comstock laws didn't get finally overturned by the Supreme Court until I think it was 1962. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So you know, 100 uh, years of of having to do it illegally, having to do it behind the back, people going to prison and prison and prison. And what's interesting is that I found that both Stanton and Gage supported some of these women that were, were imprisoned for um for you know sharing information about birth control and Anthony is totally silent. Hmm. And, well, I well, and by that by that you mean example what example of her supporting reproductive rights. So you don't think she did or there isn't any indication that I've seen that she did. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So um, going back to the indigenous women, um, I guess I'm just curious, um, you know, if like, for instance, Matilda knew them, what sort of methods of birth control were they using? I mean, I would imagine they were probably using some herbal concoctions or something. I wish I could answer that with authority. I can, I can, you know, give you some anecdotal evidence and some information here and there. But, but what I do know is that the frequency of birth was really decided completely by women. And I've had conversation after conversation with Padmasoni men today who cannot begin to get their minds around men having anything to say about whether or not a woman births. It's it's like it just, they don't have a thought pattern that yeah. allows them to even figure out how that works. It's yeah. like trying to explain, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine, a woman, uh, an, a woman from Onondaga, trying to explain to her illegitimacy. And she said, what, that, that doesn't make any sense. You always have a mother. You know who your mother is. How could a child be illegitimate? Every child born has a mother. And, you know, <laughs> because the children are through the female line, it's sort of, what is it? She she just could not get her mind around it. There right. was nothing in her framework that could make that understandable. Switching gears a little bit, do you think the woman's Bible is worth reading? Yes, it is. It definitely is. And it is also online and searchable. Okay. So I okay. really recommend that people look at Woman, Church, and State by Matilda Jocelyn Gage and just Google it and also the woman's Bible. And tell us about how to get these chapbooks. The chapbooks, Syracuse Cultural Workers Okay, okay. You, you know, you are so fascinating, Sally, honestly. Um, I mean, so much. I, 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 well, my my last question, then I will let you go because I still have some other stuff I have to do tonight, I promise, listeners. Did did, mm-hmm. uh, did Matilda and Elizabeth, and um, did they call themselves feminists? Was that a word that was used then? No, it wasn't. They called themselves suffragists. And feminist is a term that really doesn't come into use until the 21st, or the 20th, I'm sorry, the 20th century. It's hard to know what to call them. 
because they were way beyond just the vote. But that yeah. was the word that they used for themselves. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have so enjoyed talking to you, and I just want to say congratulations on your award. The best of luck with your one woman show. And you know, honestly, I'm gonna I'm gonna put my head together with some women up in Northern California and some women down here in Southern California, and maybe between the two. Uh, maybe we can get you here on the West Coast and you can do something in Southern California and in Northern California, and maybe that will make it all more affordable and doable. So we'll have oh, to I chat. Oh, I would just love it. I would yeah, love I to think, do that. I think that would be a lot, and a lot of fun. Oh, Karen, it's wonderful visiting with you. And if I might just, is it okay if I tell people how they can get in touch with me? Because I'd love oh, to hear from many listeners with their ideas. It's just uh, Sally Rush. Wagner, and I think I probably better spell it's Sally with a Y and R O E S C H Wagner W A G N E R dot com. And that's my website www and uh, SallyRushWagner dot com. And then my um, address is just Sally at SallyRushWagner dot com. And you know what? Thank you for um, you know for for injecting that because I I uh, I just totally had a brain fart. So uh, I definitely want people to know how to reach you, Sally. Uh, you're you're just awesome, and I'm so glad I'm so glad to know you. <laughs> and I, I look oh, forward to Karen, meeting you. It's a delight to visit with you. You just always ask the right questions. <laughs> it's just fun. So anytime, well, thank you. Be and, and stay warm. And thank you so much, Karen. Okay, good night. Good night. Well, it is that time. Uh, you know, I told you I was going to talk about the bees. <laughs> And, you know, we were sort of talking about uh, some of these different things. And uh, so I want to get to the menstruation and the 10 questions for conservatives. But first, um, a couple people deserve a shout-out. And I want to make sure I get this in uh, and we don't run out of time. First, Constance Tippett. Please Google her. Google her name, Constance Tippett, T-I-P-P-E-T-T, or Google the Goddess Timeline. What an incredible woman. Not only is she a wonderful artist who has created this wonderful Goddess Timeline that shows goddesses going back to the beginning of time, but uh, she also is uh, a sculptor. And she makes these wonderful reproductions of goddess artifacts. And uh, over the holidays, she sent me this wonderful dish that you can uh, create cakes for the Queen of Heaven in. And they look, uh, you know, your cakes come out with little imprints of Ishtar on them. And you can use them in ritual or you can use them, you know, just to serve the family or on a full moon celebration. I mean, whatever, whatever. Please go see this incredible woman's work. You will want one of her goddess timelines. You will want to frame it. You will want to have it on the wall of your library. Um, I'm sure you will want one of those uh, cakes for the Queen of Heaven plates. And she has so many other beautiful um, artifacts that she's created that are reproductions of original uh, you know, goddess art pieces as well. Um, got Constance Tippett. 
And uh, the other person I want to make sure you know about is a woman by the name of Irene Nicholas. Uh, she came to my attention because her husband contacted me. I was interviewed um, uh, on Janie Reznor's radio show uh, broadcasting in Northern California, and he heard our conversation about uh, my new anthology that's out, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, and he reached out to me. He wanted me to know about his wife, uh, Irene Nicholas, who passed away on May 17th uh, of last year in Santa Rosa, California. Um, she was born in 1939 in a Japanese-occupied Shanghai, China, uh, where her parents settled after fleeing the Russian Civil War. Uh, she and her family spent two years in a refugee camp on Samar Island in the Republic of the Philippines after uh, fleeing the Red Chinese Army that was in Shanghai. Uh, she finally settled in San Francisco. Uh, she got her bachelor's degree from San Francisco State as well as a teaching credential. Uh, she taught school. She loved art. Uh, she created hundreds of pieces of artwork, including fiber paintings, cut tin work, mono prints. Uh, her images were featured in national magazines. Um, she lived and worked in Grass Valley for more than 15 years uh, with her uh, husband, uh, John Fletcher, who contacted me. Uh, they owned and ran Moonshine Books in Nevada City for seven years. Uh, Irene and John uh, were members of the Booktown Books Coop, where she maintained an art studio. And uh, she was also, um, a, a, you know, a one of our kind. Uh, she uh, was part of a Nevada county art show that uh, got closed down because some of the artists uh, had pieces in there of nude goddesses uh, that uh, that ended up being censored. Anyway, you know, this felt like such a love story to me because, um, you know, I want you to know about Irene Nicholas and her wonderful art, um, but I, but I also, you know, wanted to make mention of Irene and her relationship uh, with John because, you know, she passed away in May of last year, and here's John, her devoted and loving husband still reaching out to people like me, sharing his wonderful wife's artwork. And I was gifted with about a dozen or so of her prints. And um, I think you might be able to find them on Left Coast Books and Art at mcn.org. Uh, or maybe you can Google her name, Irene Nicholas, uh, N-I-C-O-L-A-S. You know, there aren't a whole lot of goddess cards out there to choose from. And so when I find some nice ones, uh, it means so much. But there was just something about this, this wonderful man wanting to share his wife's work with me. Um, I, I have to tell you, I teared up. I, I thought it was so, such, I, I thought it was so beautiful that, um, you know, uh, you know, here she's here she's left us the middle of last year, and he loved her so much, and he admired her so much. Uh, he is still sharing her work with the world, and I just want to say, John, if you're listening, thank you so very much. I've been sharing your uh, artwork with uh, with my friends, and uh, everybody loves it. And I just want to say, thank you, thank you for uh, the gift 
but but even more than that, thank you for being a great husband to Irene. I'm sure she is smiling down at you and uh, with just a big smile and thinking, I was so lucky to be married to that man. So thank you, John. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, the other things uh, we were going to talk about tonight uh, were – uh, this Indian company, uh, this was on the Huffington Post, this, um, uh, this Indian company uh, f- uh, forced female workers to be strip searched after a uh, personal hygiene product was found in the ladies' bathroom. Uh, that we're talking about a tampon here. About 45 Indian women, all employees of Asma, A-S-M-A, rubber, private, limited, and under the age of 50 were required to remove their clothes for inspection by two female supervisors after the tampon was found in the, in the restroom. So now there's a Facebook campaign called Red Alert, You've Got a Napkin, launched by Kiss of Love, a group against moral policing in India. Uh, They've joined a chorus of outrage against this ASMA, A-S-M-A, Rubber Private Limited, uh, and drawing attention to the lack of awareness regarding women's reproductive health in India, particularly taboos about menstruation. The group wrote on Facebook, This is not a singular act. The lack of, let alone hygienic, but minimal sanitation facilities is a grave issue that women face on a daily basis. Several places do not even allow employees to go to the toilet more than twice during their work time. The several cases reported recently about the discrimination by KSRTC employees towards possibly menstruating women is another instance of this kind which accuses women of polluting and contaminating public, at times, sacred spaces through their presence, protest against this inhuman act. Um, The Red Alert, You've Got a Napkin campaign, asked supporters to send used or unused sanitary napkins to Asthma Rover Private Limited's offices in protest of this action. Several people posted photos of the sanitary napkins they sent in. Yes, you can actually see them online. If you go to the Huffington Post uh, and you go to Group Barrage's company with sanitary pads after it has harassed, I think you'll find it. Um, Going on here with the article, as BBC News reported, taboos can lead to harmful myths about women who are menstruating, that they're impure, filthy, or even cursed. Furthermore, Bloomberg reported that taboos around sexual health and hygiene products in India have proven to be a major barrier in preventing women from accessing education and growing their economic potential. One 15-year-old Indian schoolgirl told the BBC that she misses class when she's menstruating because she feels embarrassed, angry, and very dirty. So, you know, this is what the message that their culture sends them. According to A.C. Nielsen's study, 12% of women in India who are of menstruating age use sanitary napkins. Only 12%. Most women resort to unsafe and unhygienic alternatives like cloths, ashes, or husk sand. 
This is sad. This is really sad. On December 27th, following a request from advocacy group Kerala Women's Commission, police in India opened a case against the Asma Rubber Private Limited Company regarding the strip searching incident. Anyway, you, you, I think you need to know that. This is what women are enduring in other parts of the world. Uh, we may be enduring um, certain kinds of stuff here, but that's what they, uh, you know, that's just one thing they're enduring uh, in India. Um, and let's see, the next thing I will share with you, I will save Gloria Steinem's article, If Men Could Menstruate for Last, uh, in the hopes I will have time to read it to you. <clears throat> but these 10 questions for conservatives uh, is from the uh, truthout.org <clears throat> website. Uh, and it says, now that the Republican Party, the conservative voice in mainstream U.S. electoral politics, has attained the most thoroughgoing control of Congress, Congress since 1928, it's an appropriate time to take a good look at modern conservatism by asking <clears throat> these ten questions. Um, is, uh, are these allegations fair? Uh, there certainly seem to be plenty of discrepancies between words and deeds, and conservatives should be asked to explain these things. For example, number one, as opponents of big government, why do you fervently support an unending stream of government-sponsored wars, vast government military spending, the power of local police to shoot and kill unarmed citizens, government interference with abortion rights and family planning, government restrictions on marriage, and the linkage of church and state? You know, they don't care about big government when it comes to those things, obviously. So, you know, is, gee, could that be hypocrisy? Uh, or cherry picking, you know, big, you know, where they want big government. They don't want big government when it comes to regulation uh, to keep the air and water safe or to make sure workers get decent uh, uh, benefits or conditions to work in. Okay, number two, as advocates of consumer sovereignty, why do you oppose re uh, requiring corporations to label their products with information like GMOs that would enable consumers to make an intelligent choice of products? No, they don't want us to know what crap goes into the food. Some of the food isn't even food anymore. Okay, number three, as advocates of personal advancement through individual effort, you know, they're the ones pull yourself up from your bootstraps, why do you oppose inheritance taxes that would place the children of rich and poor on a more equal footing in their struggle for personal success? You know, don't you love these guys who are, are millionaires because they've inherited it? They never worked a day in their life. They don't know what it's like to punch a clock. They don't know what it's like to not have any benefits. You know, they've just inherited all of their money, but they want to tell everybody else about individual effort. Yes, and if you're not working hard enough, and if you don't have anything, well, you know, you just aren't blessed from God. Maybe you're a sinner. Maybe you're lazy. Okay, number four, as advocates of capitalist competition in the marketplace, why do you so consistently support the interests of giant corporations over those of small business? Okay, self-explanatory. Number five, as advocates of the private enterprise system, why do you so often favor government subsidies to failing big businesses and tax breaks to thriving big businesses that you desire to lure into your state or region. Okay? 
also, uh, as advocates of the private enterprise citizen, why do you favor government substances to failing big businesses like the banks? Remember, they saved the banks. And tax breaks to thriving big businesses. Think of the oil company subsidies, in other words, corporate welfare, that uh, you want to lure to your state. All right, number six, as advocates of freedom to choose to work for employers, which is called freedom of contract, why do you oppose employee right to stop working for that employer that is to strike and particularly to strike against the government? Number seven, as advocates of voluntary rather than government action to redress grievances, why do you fervently oppose labor unions? Number eight, as advocates of the the free movement of labor and capital, why do you support government immigration restrictions, including the construction of enormous walls, the massive policing of borders, and the building of mass incarceration centers? You can see the hypocrisy in all of these, right? Uh, And finally, number 10, the advocates of freedom. Why are you not at the forefront of the fight against government torture, political surveillance, and censorship? You know, they talk a good game. Um, They got people like um, that Lutz guy. I am forgetting Lutz or Lutz. uh, He's their wordsmith. I can't think of his first name right now. They they find out what words um, they can use to convince people that their shit policies are actually something good for them, and they it it you know it's just uh, it's just propaganda, and it just uh, it makes me mad. Can you tell? <laughs> okay, so great article here from uh, uh, by Gloria Steinem. I found it on haverford.edu if you want a copy for yourself. It's just funny, uh, kind of lightens things, and I'll try to finish it before uh, I run out of time. So this is Gloria Steinem, If Men Could Menstruate. Living in India made me understand that a white minority of the world has spent centuries conning us into thinking a white skin makes people superior, even though the only thing it really does is make them more subject to ultraviolet rays and wrinkles. Reading Freud made me just as skeptical about penis envy. The power of giving birth makes womb envy more logical, and an organ as external and unprotected as the penis makes men very vulnerable indeed. But listening recently to a woman describe the unexpected arrival of her menstrual period, a red stain had spread on her dress as she argued heatedly on the public stage, still made me cringe with embarrassment. That is, until she explained that when finally informed in whispers of the obvious event that she's standing there on stage with a red stain on her dress, she turned around and said to the male audience, and you should be proud to have a menstruating woman on your stage. It's probably the first real thing that's happened to to this group in years. Imagine. Imagine. Laughter, relief, she had turned a negative into a positive. Somehow her story merged with India and Freud to make me finally understand the power of positive thinking. Whatever a superior group has will be used to justify its superiority, and whatever, whatever an inferior group has will be used to justify its plight. 
black me were given poor uh, black men were given poorly paid jobs because they were said to be stronger than white men while all women were relegated to poorly paid jobs because they were said to be weaker as the little boy said when asked if he wanted to be a lawyer like his mother oh no that's woman work women's work logic has nothing to do with oppression so what would happen if suddenly magically men could menstruate and women could not Clearly, menstruation would become an enviable, worthy, masculine event, such as men would brag about how long and how much. Young boys would talk about it as the envied beginning of manhood. Gifts, religious ceremonies, family dinners, stag parties would mark the day. To prevent monthly work loss among the powerful, Congress would fund a National Institute of Desmenorah. Doctors would research little about heart attacks from which men would be hormonally protected, but everything about cramps. Sanitary supplies would be federally funded and free. Of course, some men would still pay for the prestige of such commercial brands as Paul Newman tampons, Muhammad Ali's rope-a-dope pads, John Wayne maxi pads, and Joe Namath jock shields for those light bachelor days. Statistical surveys show would show that men did better in sports and won more Olympic medals during their periods. Generals, right-wing politicians, and religious fundamentalists would cite menstruation, notice the M-E-N, menstruation, as proof that only men could serve God and country in combat. You have to give blood to take blood, would be their motto. Or occupy high political office, and their slogan would be, can women be properly fierce without a monthly cycle governed by... The planet Mars? Could they be priests, ministers, God himself? He gave this blood for our sins, would be the quote. Or rabbis, without a monthly purge of impurities, women are unclean. Male liberals and radicals, however, would insist that women are equal, just different, and that any woman could join their ranks if only she were willing to recognize the primacy of menstrual rights, for instance. Everything else is a single issue, unquote. Or self-inflict a major wound every month. You must give blood for the revolution. Street guys would invent slang like, he's a three-pad man, and give fives on the corner with some exchange like, man, you're looking good. Yeah, man, I'm on the rag. TV shows would treat the subject openly. On Happy Days, for instance, Richie and Potsy would try to convince Fonzie that he is still the Fonz, though he missed two periods in a row. On Hill Street Blues, the whole Prince Saint would hit the same cycle. So would newspapers. It would, the headlines would be, summer, summer Shark Scare Threatens Menstruating Men, or Judge Cites Monthlies and Pardoning Rapist. And so would movies. We'd have titles like Newman and Redford and Blood Brothers. Men would convince women that sex was more pleasurable at that time of month. Lesbians would be said to fear blood and therefore life itself, though they all, but though what they all needed was a good menstruating man. 
Medical schools would limit women's entry because they might faint at the sight of blood. Of course, intellectuals would offer the most moral and logical arguments. Without the biological gift for measuring the cycles of the moon and the planets, how could a woman master any discipline that demanded a sense of time, space, mathematics, or the ability to measure anything at all? In philosophy and religion, how could women compensate for being disconnected from the rhythm of the universe or for their lack of symbolic death and resurrection every month? Menopause would be celebrated as a positive event, the event that men had accumulated enough years of cyclical wisdom to need no more. Liberal males in every field would try to be kind. The fact that these people have no gift for measuring life, the liberals would explain, should be punishment enough. And how would women be trained to react? One can imagine right-wing women agreeing to all these arguments with a staunch and smiling machoism. And they'd say stuff like maybe the ERA would force housewives to wound to wound themselves every month. Maybe Phyllis Chaffley would be one who would say something like that. In short, we would discover as we should already in short, we would discover, as we should already, that logic is in the eye of the logician. For instance, here's an idea for theorists and logicians. If women are supposed to be less rational and more emotional at the beginning of our menstrual cycle, when the female hormone is at its lowest level, then why isn't it logical to say in those days women behave the most like the way men behave all month long? I leave further improvisation up to you. The truth is that if men could menstruate, the power justifications would go on and on if we let them. (laughs) Anyway, I just thought that was funny. I thought you would enjoy it. I hope you did. So um, just a few uh, announcements before we close the show. We only have a few minutes left. Uh, Please let me hear from you. you know, tell me what you're liking. Tell me um, what you're not liking. Tell me if you have any ideas for guests. Uh, we have some great guests uh, scheduled the next few weeks, but then I always think the guests are great, but they are. And um, I wanted to tell you that if you're in the Southern California area um, on uh, January 17th, I am going to be giving a talk at uh, the at uh, the Soul Centered Metaphysical Shop and Event Center on Saturday, January 17th, from two to four. Uh, the talk is called "Reawakening Our Earliest Sacred Stories." Um, what it's about is this. Uh, This is the description of the class. Most of us have come to realize patriarchy, rule by a male-dominated society, revering revering solely a male god is not working for Mother Earth or most of the people on the planet. Um, So I will be discussing how mythology shapes our culture with particular emphasis on how our earliest sacred stories of the sacred feminine actually offers alternatives to this patriarchy that doesn't work. How might the world look or what new normal might we still create if we recover these suppressed earlier stories from the trash bins of history and restore these values to the center of society. If we can remember them, vision them, restore these ancient truths, these ancient stories, manifest them in the world. So let's get busy. What do you think? So we'll have Q&A and discussion and a little mini ritual. Um, I'll have my books there if uh, you'd like to buy a book directly from me. 
And uh, I've been talking about it, so I won't go into it in a lot of detail, but uh, if you are thinking about that uh, seminar at sea I've mentioned for a few weeks now, uh, you really do need to make a decision soon, or at least let me know you are thinking about it uh, because it's getting close to the deadline. Um and uh, I need to hear from you. Uh, same with the tour to Turkey. I've mentioned that quite often, and uh, I think it's going to be a wonderful tour. And uh, if you're thinking about doing that, I hope you will email me and let me know to save you a spot, or uh, at least let me know that uh, you might need me to save you a spot. You don't have to give me a formal commitment, but it would be great to know uh, how many people out there are actually uh, considering uh, doing this. Also, uh, please think about the Goddess Temple down in Southern California. If uh, you want to have an event, you can rent the place. Um, also, their Venus Hour every Friday where they have movies, networking, uh, libation snacks. Uh, you can meet like men and women, like-minded men and women. Fourth Sundays is always for families, so you can bring uh, your sons, you can bring your uh, your your um, you know your husbands, your brothers, your your uncles, uh, you know, so men can come on Fourth Sundays, and uh, pretty soon it will actually be a museum and cultural center. Uh, that process is uh, is in the works, and uh, remember, there are only a handful of actual brick and mortar goddess temples on the face of the earth. Please do what you can to know about this one and support it if you can and go there and enjoy the uh, wonderful events that they have um, you know, in, on almost a daily basis. Uh, that's the Goddess Temple in Orange County in Irvine. So I think uh, that will bring tonight's show uh, to a close. I want to thank everyone for being a loyal listener. Uh, please remember to hit the follow button if you have not already. That way you will know about um, the weekly shows that um, uh, you know are, are here every uh, every week. Uh, later on this month, uh, I'm going to have Lauren Rain with me. We're going to be talking about Masks of the Goddess. Uh, Faces of the Divine Feminine with Mask Story Ritual Theater. Uh, Deborah Lloyd is going to be with me um, talking about healing is always possible. Uh, Gina uh, Ciccinelli, uh, we're going to be talking about the wonder of despacho rituals and spells. Uh, she's a shaman and a witch. Uh, so there's lots of good stuff uh, coming this month, and you won't want to uh, you won't want to miss it. All right, so that about does it for tonight. I hope you had a wonderful holiday. I hope you didn't conform too much unless you really wanted to. Uh, and I think we'll go out with uh, Abigail Spinner McBride uh, with her music called A Sacred Way. So remember, dear listeners, find your sacred roar and remember you are always embraced in the arms of the mother. Good night. <laughs>